Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, medical oncologist at Georgetown University. As we've said many times on this podcast, the proper treatment of lung cancer requires a multidisciplinary team. There are many members of that team. Our focus in this episode is on one of the most important members of that team, the pathologist. The role of the pathologist in the treatment of lung cancer has dramatically evolved as our understanding of lung cancer biology has advanced. Today, we discuss that evolution. We're going to highlight some of the hot topics in pathology for lung cancer. And to join us today, I have two of the most renowned lung cancer pathologists really in the world, Dr. Dara Eisner from the University of Colorado and Dr. Ignacio Estuba from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Now, those in the field will certainly recognize these names. Dr. Ignacio Estuba is a professor in the Department of Thoracic and Head and Neck Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. He is the head of the Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, an expert in translational pathology. Ignacio, great to have you with us. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation, Dr. Liu. And Dr. Dara Eisner is an associate professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. She has expertise in anatomic as well as molecular genetic pathology and is the medical director of the Colorado Molecular Correlates Laboratory. Dara, thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, the two of you are so accomplished, recognized in our field, and you know, I really want to spend time on emerging topics and concepts. But I'd like to walk through a bit of the basics of pathology you know, for our listeners who are in training, who are not medical professionals or patients and advocates. Can we walk through some of the early steps in establishing a diagnosis of lung cancer? Maybe tell us what a pathologist does. If we have a patient who has a lung mass and we're suspicious for an advanced lung cancer, we know that we need a biopsy to make that diagnosis. And so we'll send that patient to a radiologist or a pulmonologist or a surgeon who will perform that biopsy, we then take the tissue from that needle biopsy, and that's going to be sent to one of you two in pathology. Dara, what happens next? Well, pathology has a very significant technical part of it, and we tend to refer to this globally as tissue processing, but in reality, it's got lots of little steps in it. And pathologists are kind of notorious for using food analogies, so I'll, I'll go ahead and meet the stereotype and use a food analogy here. If you can imagine taking a raw sausage and trying to cut it on a deli slicer, you can imagine it'll crumble apart into little bits. And much like that, tissue will crumble apart into little bits if we try to look at it microscopically without doing some stuff to it. And the stuff we do to it, globally called tissue processing, is designed to make it really firm and cuttable without really impacting its ability to be observed in a microscope. And if you've ever been to, you know, a science museum that has a bodies exhibit, bodies in motion, for example, that's a process called plastinization. And while we don't use plastinization, we use something pretty similar to it with a form of paraffin wax. And essentially what we do is we plastinate, not exactly, tissues so that way they can be cut into very fine slices. And once we have finished that processing, we put them on a microtome, which is essentially not dissimilar from a mini deli slicer. And that allows us to cut tissue so thin that it's microns thick and it can be viewed under a microscope after we've applied some special stains. 
Now, the first thing a pathologist does is they just look at the most generic of those special stains that we call an H&E. That's for hematoxylin and eosin. And that allows us to at least have a sense of what we're looking at. Usually after that, we'll think about additional stains we might do. And the most common of those is called immunohistochemistry. And immunohistochemistry is another set of complex technical steps, but the end result is that you get to label different cells different ways. And that process allows us to learn more about the specific features of the cells that we can see microscopically. Wonderful. There, we live in a world now where we want everything immediately, but can you frame about how long does it take to do this processing? Is this something that comes back instantaneously? Well, tissue processing is usually at a minimum an overnight type of event. You know, in exceptional circumstances, pathologists can upend the lab to make stats or rushes happen. But for the most part, for something where it literally isn't someone's going to die in the ICU if we don't have an answer, it's an overnight process to just go from the tissue to getting the tissue plastic, you know, the equivalent of plastinized and able to be cut. Then for each of those special stains, it can take anywhere from about two thirds of a day to another overnight round. And this is in large part why when uh, people go and see a surgeon and the surgeon says, well, we'll have your pathology back in a week or two. That's why, because it's a stepwise process that, you know, in many cases, each step is a day or so. And sometimes you get one set of information and now you need to do another set of stains to continue to characterize what you're looking at. So sometimes we have to be a little patient to get the answers done the right way. That's wonderful outline of that process. And we talk about tissue a lot on this podcast and our discussions about the management of lung cancer, because the tissue from these biopsies is extremely valuable. It's extremely important. You know, we use that tissue to make a diagnosis, but we also need to perform biomarker testing to help guide therapy, targeted therapy, immunotherapy. So it's important that we use that tissue wisely. And there's a lot of focus on tissue stewardship and how to decide what tests to run with a finite amount of material. You mentioned immunohistochemistry, Dara, that can help characterize the tissue a bit more. But Ignacio, how critical are those tests in 2022? You know, should we be performing a broad IHC panel on every lung cancer specimen? I think that the lung cancer pathology community based on the need for a non-small cell lung cancer diagnostic biomarkers at molecular immunology level, we have learned that we need to preserve the tissue. We cannot use it too much in the process of diagnosis that Dr. Eisner was explaining. So I think that we need to minimize how much tissue we cut from those blocks that we are preparing from the tissue in the tissue processing and enough to make the right diagnosis based on the histology that she described and selected immunostochemistries because it's important to have enough tissue for molecular testing and markers associated to immunotherapy. I know that this is probably too technical, but for the people who are in working with lung cancer diagnosis and treatment, for non-small cell lung cancer, we need to use at least one or two specific biomarkers for each histology. For example, adenocarcinoma, we use something called TTF1. It's a biomarker for squamous cell carcinoma. The preferred one is called T40. And then if there is any other less frequent subtype of non-small cell lung cancer, 
we need to use more specialized markers at the immunostochemistry level. But the concept is one, preserve tissue after making the right diagnosis for molecular and immunotherapy-related biomarkers. I think we're aligned here. The molecular diagnosis is pivotal to the proper treatment of non-small cell lung cancer, and that's something that's evolved over time. And we want to try to avoid a repeat biopsy, which will introduce more risk. We want to try to avoid delays in starting a therapy. So as a result, I think we've all become very conscious of what tests have been performed because we need that biomarker testing. You know, so one of the topics we often discuss with regard to biomarker testing is single gene testing versus multiplex testing versus NGS. Dara, for the uninitiated here, what are we talking about? Sure. Well, in many ways, thinking about all of these types of tests is really about asking how focused of a question you want to answer at any moment in time, and is the amount of tissue you're going to use to answer that question worth it? And when we think about things like PCR-based tests or FISH-based tests relative to larger scale tests like NGS, the way I tend to like to explain this is to think about needles and haystacks and think about a test as a needle detector for any specific haystack. A PCR or a FISH test is generally going to be very, very good at identifying a needle in a haystack, i.e. a specific biomarker. And in general, these tests tend to be very, very sensitive. I mean, for some of these, you can get down to the equivalent of one needle in a very large haystack. The downside, though, is that oftentimes these tests have to be exquisitely focused. And so continuing with my needle and haystack analogy, let's say you've got 30 different needles in a haystack and they're all different colors. Well, a PCR test might be akin to saying that you've got a test that can only detect green needles and it won't detect any of the other 29 needle variant colors that are in that haystack. And so in many ways, when we think about targeted tests versus broader tests, we're asking, well, how focused of a question do we want to ask and how sensitively do we want to detect it in terms of being able to identify a rare event in the population of cells that we're looking at. Well put. And I think that the clinical context will be very different. And one thing is, I think clinicians a lot of times assume that the pathologist knows what we're trying to ask uh, without really telling them. I don't know if you run into that a lot. I think the, the situation where that really does come to mind is, you know, in a patient who, for example, gets a biopsy and it gets submitted to us as lung mass. Well, if we don't have other information to guide us as to what the clinician thinks is the probability of a lung cancer versus say a metastasis from somewhere else, that's a situation where, you know, we're kind of compelled to do additional exploration to be very certain about a diagnostic entity. And again, circling back to the previous question about IHC, that's an example where somebody might say, okay, well, I don't know much about this and somebody wants an answer really quickly. So we're going to do seven or eight immunos to get the answer about the type of tumor quickly. And so I think that's an example of where being able to contextualize what somebody, what question someone is asking is really relevant. When you think about it in terms of molecular testing, you know, it's a very similar sort of thing. Particularly early in the days of NGS, I recall people would say, well, send this for NGS. And sending something for NGS is like saying, go buy a nice car, right? I mean, nice is in the eye of the beholder. And even if we all agree on some nice cars, there's still 
10 different kinds of them, right? And, and so saying send this for NGS is a fairly nondescript statement. And so I think understanding the scope of any individual test is really important to being able to accurately ask for the thing you really want, you know, really ask for the question that you want answered to be answered. And what I encourage, you know, junior faculty, our fellows, trainees at our institution is to just pick up the phone or to go over to our pathologist and tell them exactly why we're doing this. Um, that way, you know, we'll be sure to process things in the right way. You know, everyone's part of the same team here. But let's say we're in a situation where we do a biopsy and we know that it's lung cancer. This biopsy is for next generation sequencing. We want to do broad molecular testing to sort of look for targets. Ignacio, who does that actual testing? How long does that take? Can you talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts there? Okay. Yep. And actually, I like nice cars. So I, <laughs> but <laughs> besides that, I think that there is consensus that broad molecular testing is the way to start the process of testing in lung cancer and next generation of sequencing offer that opportunity. So the process is that a physician ordered the test. In some institutions, there is something called reflex testing in which basically, you know, lung, non-small cell lung cancer tumors are particularly adenocarcinoma histology. They have a panel of decided, so they go directly without a physician order to for testing. But in many other institutions who do not have this reflex testing, is the physician that orders the test. And then the pathologists need to assess the quality of the tissue and the quantity of the tissue for that particular molecular testing. And then also look at in the microscope and select the best area for the molecular pathology lab and extract the DNA or RNA for testing. And that's a QC process that is important that is in place. Then the usually sections, histology section of the tissue and stain go to a molecular lab that could be a laboratory that's part of the pathology department or could be in another institution or another section of the same institution. So, and that is very important to keep in mind because each of these steps actually takes time and it's not always an automatic process. So then the material goes to uh, these molecular labs, molecular pathologies, and people training the laboratory for molecular testing, extract DNA and RNA, and they run it in the platform that they have available for the panels of genes and abnormalities that they have available. Now, for years, this, this sequencing, the next generation sequencing was DNA-based. I'm looking for DNA alterations. But in recent years, there's been a lot of interest in RNA-based next-gen sequencing or dual extraction for both DNA and RNA testing. Dara, what's the potential benefit of RNA sequencing? And is this something we should be doing for everyone? RNA-based NGS has really come to the fore in just the last couple of years. And it's really just been in the last couple of years, we've recognized the types of situations where it can really outperform DNA-based testing. And the number one area for that is really when we think about gene fusions. And when we think about the whole host of gene fusions that you can find in lung cancer, ALK, ROS1, RET, and TREK1, 2, and 3, these are all things that are very rare individually. But when you put them together as a single group, 
are not so rare that it's not worth thinking about how to identify them in the very best way you can. Now, RNA-based NGS is a bit more challenging technically because RNA is just a little bit more difficult to work with, and particularly out of formalin fixed tissue, RNA can be very challenging. But the advantage to RNA testing when it comes to gene fusion events is kind of, I could really dive into some technical weeds here. So I'm going to use yet another analogy. You'll see I love these. I like to use an analogy talking about a scavenger hunt. So if you have a cross-country scavenger hunt and you're in DC, I'm in Denver. So we're going to say there's a scavenger hunt that requires you to pick up clues between DC and Denver. If you decide you're going to do that scavenger hunt by road, well, that's going to be a long and pretty difficult road to make that drive. And you'll get to see lots of beautiful countryside, but it's still going to take you a long time and probably be a little more arduous than if you got on a plane. And DNA testing is like doing the road trip and RNA testing is like taking the plane to pick up the next clue. You get to sort of skip over a lot of the cornfields and pasture and whatever else might be beautiful, but take a long time by doing RNA-based testing. And so it allows you to kind of put the two pieces of the clue together more quickly. And, you know, in terms of how to identify when people should get RNA-based testing. Well, a lot of this is baked into that concept of what is the scope of the testing you're doing. And what I would argue is that lung cancer patients in which DNA-based testing has not shown a clear-cut driver, like a KRAS or an EGFR or a BRAF, that's when RNA-based testing really makes a lot of sense. And there's really good papers that show that in that situation, you actually fairly well enrich for fusion events. Now, the downside to this, Dara, I mean, is it is it just a matter of cost? To some degree, it's cost. To some degree, it's complexity. To some degree, it's turnaround time. So if you're going to do a DNA-based test, and then once it's negative for a driver start an RNA-based test, you could be tacking a week or more onto the to- total timeline before you can make a targeted therapy versus no decision. And of course, that is always an uncomfortable situation for patients and their providers. And then you know, certainly the complexity of doing RNA-based testing out of formalin tissue leads the very real possibility that the quality of the RNA won't be good enough to have a definitive answer. So it would be, you know, particularly disappointing to wait an extra period of time only to have the assay be suboptimal. Hey, Nasa, do you have any thoughts on DNA versus RNA versus both? No, I think that, you know, Uh, Dr. Eisen explained that very well. I don't have anything to add. Thank you. Now, we're starting to move our targeted therapy, our immunotherapy, earlier and earlier in treatment in the perioperative setting when we're planning neoadjuvant therapy. In those cases, you know, as a clinician, I really want to know the mutation status, the PDL1 status before I decide adjuvant targeted therapy, neoadjuvant immunotherapy. But stepping back, it seems like we're asking more and more information from smaller and smaller samples. Ignacio, is something like an EBUS fine needle aspirate, is that going to be enough for this type of testing? And and maybe do you have any general suggestions for optimizing tissue stewardship? Yeah, that's a very important question, especially when, as you said, we're moving to molecular testing and immune response biomarkers to the early stage of the disease. And this actually brings the of context, right? Because uh, for those um, stages of lung cancer, 
the therapeutic opportunities are probably more limited than the one that you would like to explore in advanced lung cancer. So you may be uh, very well served with a smaller panel of biomarkers to answer that specific question. So, and, and many institutions actually are reacting to that and developing or preparing those, optimizing those uh, smaller panel for the situation because a patient that's gonna face surgery actually is a patient that's facing a potentially curative approach and it's hard to wait, right? For two weeks, three weeks turn around in a large panel of molecular testing, like large panel of NGS. So smaller panel with rapid turnaround to answer that specific question are becoming very useful. In terms of the samples obtained from EVAS, it depends like many things in medicine, right? Depends on the amount of material that has to do a lot with the experience of the person doing the EVAS and taking the sample. Then with the workflow that has been established in the pathology slash cytology lab for processing those specimens, and then, of course, on the uh, capability of molecular lab to deal with a smaller amount of material. And in terms of the processing of the EVAS specimens, if the material is abundant in some laboratories, actually, you could develop, uh, produce a, something similar than a tissue block, but this is based on aggregate of cells and other material. We call it cell block. From that cell block, you can cut sections, read them as histology, run immunostochemistry, and also extract DNA and RNA for molecular testing. And furthermore, more, because many of these cytology, AWAS specimen produce cytology smears, so cells that are put on the surface of a glass slide for a cytology observation in the microscope. And you can go back to those uh, cells after diagnosis has been done, scrape them out and extract DNA or RNA from molecular testing. So that could be another option for the same type of material. And third, some laboratories have developed a liquid biopsy approach to the liquid base of the material that is obtained as part of the cytology specimen with the EVAS. And that uh, material has been shown to be rich of uh, DNA, for example, from other sample malignant cells, and that could be run as a liquid biopsy. So from the same specimen, you have three options, but the key is that the material has to be sufficient enough, not only for diagnosis, for also for these uh, testing and molecular testing approaches. That's very resourceful with, with the tissue provided. That's wonderful. But it's not just quantity, right? It's also the quality of yes. the tissue and the nucleic acid that matters as well. Are there other things that can impact nucleic acid quality and maybe any tips to maximize the yield of testing? Yes, there are most definitely lots of things that can impact the quality of the nucleic acids we get from material. And, you know, the easiest thing to point to is really the 2013 guidelines that came out for breast cancer, a formal infixation exposure that samples should have, in large part because of the impact on downstream molecular studies. And what we know from both the literature and from our own experience in molecular labs around the country, is that samples that are exposed to less than favorable conditions see a deterioration in the quality of the nucleic acid. And so formal and fixation time is just one of those features. And 
Certainly uh, samples that sit in formalin for too long can become extra challenging for biomarker testing, but bone biopsies are a particular area of focus as well, because in a histology lab, if you see that a sample is a bone biopsy, it might be fairly automatic to put that sample into what's called decalcification. And if we think back to that mini deli slicer, well, those mini deli slicers don't like to encounter the hard substance of bone. So we have to soften those up. And we do that by basically leaching the calcium out of them. And the easiest way to leach calcium out of a sample is by sticking it in a strong acid. But it so happens that strong acids also destroy nucleic acid. So that's a really good example of when our routine processes might be inadvertently detrimental. And I think increasingly pathology labs around the country are paying attention to how to manage this. And this includes lots of processes by which you can really more granularly assess on a case-by-case basis whether decalcification is needed or how long they spend before formalin is put on them. There's lots of really important technical steps that can be implemented to help with that tissue sufficiency, because even if you have enough, but it's terrible quality, it won't do you much good. See, this, these are, that's such a critical point to me that because the clinical impact of a false negative here, I think is, is pretty dramatic, right? It really influences care and you really choose the wrong therapy. And so you know, one of the, the things I mentioned to my trainees is, you know, if the NGS shows no drivers at all, you know, make sure that this is not from bone because that might have given us a false negative and you really need to know those details. So that's a really important point there. And, you know, we still send a lot of these, these tests back. A lot of them are done at commercial laboratories. I know at Collateral, you do a lot in-house, but when we get these biomarker reports, these you know, molecular signatures it can be a little bit of alphabet soup, especially for someone that's not used to looking at these all the time. So Dara, what advice do you have for a oncologist that might not really understand the report that they're handed? Yeah, this is certainly a really complicated area. And, you know, certainly as we think about new generations of trainees, it's really important that we think about including all of these alphabet soup pieces in there. Moving forward, I would say that there's a number of really good resources and the first resource I tend to point people to is the NCCN compendium, which is just you know on the NCCN website. And it's a searchable database of biomarkers and specific disease indications. So that's a really good starting point. You know, obviously educational sessions are really helpful, whether it's at ASCO or at a pathology meeting. There's lots of opportunities for educational sessions. And a growing trend around the country is to have molecular tumor boards, and those are also extremely helpful. And in fact, for many of the laboratories, many of those commercial laboratories have molecular tumor boards that they will sponsor to answer questions about any of those reports. And then lastly, and I think really importantly, and you got to this, Stephen, is kind of the phone-a-friend network. And I will tell you that most pathologists I know are only to help with whatever we can. We tend to be pretty helpful type people who really just want to help however we can, particularly when it comes to taking care of patients. So, you know, I'd say that finding a good phone, a friend network of pathologists and molecular pathologists is a really good step as well. I think it's critical. And I would just encourage listeners to not be shy about asking, you know, there's no shame in not understanding all the intricacies here. This is all relatively new, right? I mean, Five, 10 years ago, we weren't doing these tests, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and as soon as you think you have it, there will be a new term thrown into the mix, I promise. Exactly. Exactly. So don't be shy about asking. We did our training, you know, some of us quite a while ago, and the field moves very quickly. Ignacio, any other tips in terms of these reports? I know that you collaborate with some of the MD Anderson affiliates abroad outside the US. Do you feel like they face similar challenges? Yes, they actually, in some, depending on which part of the world, right? So, in my experience, in Europe, in general, there are a lot of resources for people to find the information that they need. The concept of molecular boards or online assistance is actually available to them. So it's more challenging in other parts of the world. As you know, I'm coming from Latin America and I interact a lot with pathologists and oncologists from that region and it's very challenging. And But I think that is there are many organizations that are working on this concept of make information available to the physicians who are dealing with patients with lung cancer, some online information too. And so I think that we're making progress. I'm more concerned about the physicians who are, are general oncologists who are treating actually patients with lung cancer because they are always, not always, you know, receiving all the information in timely fashion. So that is an area that we need to work not only abroad, but also in United States. I think that's a really big challenge, an important one, but you're very right because the you know an example that comes to mind is you know HER2 testing in breast cancer couldn't be more different than HER2 testing for lung cancer. We're really looking for completely different things. And you have to really understand sort of what tests to order and how to interpret them. And that's only going to get more complicated. So it's really challenging, you know, that as our treatments and our understanding of lung cancer biology just gets more sophisticated, the details just become more important. I think another good example of that is gene amplification. You know, we know that this can help predict response to certain drugs, uh, MET inhibitors in tumors with high levels of MET amplification. But there, how do we identify, how do we define amplification? And is this something that's standardized across all platforms? This is a great example of where I think the science is going to move and where trying your best to keep up with the current state of uh, the play becomes really critical. Met amplification does have a definition if you're doing it by fish, but increasingly people are doing their testing by NGS and relying on NGS-based assessments of amplification. And even though Met has a definition for what classifies it as amplified, there are different definitions for low-level versus moderate-level versus high-level amplification, and those cutoffs are still you know, very much under evaluation. I think one of the things to recognize about amplification when it's detected by NGS is that that is a different definition than when it's defined by FISH. And I suspect you don't want me to go into the deep technical weeds on this as I can so easily do, but you know, in brief, amplification by NGS, it's very uncommon that a sample that would be positive for amplification by NGS would be negative for amplification by fish. Conversely, samples that are negative for amplification by NGS could still be positive for amplification by fish because it can just detect a lower level of amplification. Now, this is where it gets really complicated, though, which is that 
if the data comes out that says, well, it's really only the highest level amplification and met that matters, well, that gray zone in between those two tests won't matter as much. But we don't really know that yet. It's fascinating to me. And you know, I think the clinical impact is something that we have to, to factor into to all of these tests and it factors into how we, we study them. This med amplification question is one we've asked for quite a while. And I think most of the you know, important work has come from your institution. We're using a lot more tests. Amplification is going to be important. Mutations, fusions, we know. But Ignacio, we also do some sort of clinically relevant immunohistochemistry too, in terms of predictive biomarkers. We will use you know, expression of PDL one to help guide therapy. I think a lot of our listeners have heard of that. There are a lot of different PDL1 assays out there, though. Are these all the same? They're not the same, but I think that the situation now with the PDL1 immunostochemistry assessment is much simpler than we thought it's going to be. I think that there are a, a series of commercially available antibodies with different names. Probably you have heard about the 22C3, the 288, the SP263 or SP142. Very confusing, right? So the simple approach now that we have is that most of these, when they're assessed, the expression in the malignant cell, as in non-small cell lung cancer, are very comparable in general, in good hands. And most labs that have, I mean, the labs that have resources, they actually can have the right companion equipment and protocol that have been approved for different antibodies, but some other laboratories, they don't have the luxury to have those specific instrumentations. So some of these tests are run using the companion specifications of the test. Some other are run using what we call in laboratory, laboratory derived tests, LDTs. But the importance of any test, particularly for the LDTs, is that the process of validation in the laboratory and optimization has to be very rigorous. So if those rules are followed, we could say that most of these antibodies are equivalent and for expression of PDL1 in malignant cells in non-small cell cancer. And I was saying at the beginning that the situation is much simpler than, than we thought because actually we have only one antibody that's considered companion. And the other antibodies uh, can be used as a complementary biomarker, which companion means that it's required for the prescription. Complementary means that it's additional information to make a decision for a particular prescription. So it's much easier for pathologists who are working with immunostochemistry labs now for the reason that I explained. You know, I, I hear some people concerned that they're not performing an FDA approved or, you know, companion diagnostic. I think people would be surprised that a lot of the maybe more well-known cancer centers are mostly running LDTs. Is that something you've encountered? Yes, actually there are one of these PDL1 uh, antibodies that have been used extensively in research laboratories that is still used in some prestigious laboratories as in some prestigious center as preferred assay for PDL1 expression lung cancer in the clinical setting. So the important point is that the validation optimization of the assay is rigorous. And I wouldn't be afraid to use 
LDT assays if the compliance of the lab is, is good. And to be honest, most of the, I would say probably all, <laughs> the molecular tests that we have in our own laboratory here at MD Anderson are LDTs. So I, that actually speaks to the volume of the tests that are done under this category. Yeah, agreed. Dara, we now frequently integrate liquid biopsy or blood-based biomarker testing for lung cancer. How is that cell-free DNA testing different from tissue-based testing? It's a great question, Stephen. And I think it's important for people to recognize that what we commonly refer to as liquid biopsy or cell-free DNA testing is really using the DNA that the tumor sheds into the bloodstream as a surrogate for understanding the tumor cells. And it's a really effective approach. You know, I think there are a few major differences that people need to know about. The first is really on the technical basis that the sensitivity of these tests is not quite as good in many cases as testing on tissue. And that is essentially, if we go back to my prior analogy, because you can think of the haystack as being a fair bit bigger for liquid biopsy-based testing. And certainly there's plenty of data that suggests these two are complementary to each other. And I would completely support the idea that you know these are very complementary approaches, but they're most definitely not completely overlapping. And that gets you to kind of the interpretive approach that you need to think about differently. There's a couple of specific pitfalls that I think are easy to fall into when it comes to interpreting a cell-free DNA result. One is that the presence of any mutation might tell you that you were accurately testing tumor. And in reality, we know that there's lots of opportunities for mutations to exist in that portion of someone's blood, and it might not necessarily come from the tumor you're interested in testing. So I think knowing how to interpret a positive result is important. I think another element of interpreting a positive result is a phenomenon that we call CHIP or clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And as I was getting at before, this is really a reason to have a mutation that's not specific to the tumor. This is essentially individuals' bone marrows can have a transient clone that can have a mutation in it. So those are some of the pitfalls of interpreting results where you do see a mutation. The other big area is where you don't see a mutation. And I think that just as you indicated that you know it's important for people to understand if they see a, a negative tumor testing result to query whether or not there were specimen considerations, it's very much the same situation. And liquid biopsy or cell-free-based testing is really reliant on having enough tumor-derived DNA to test. And you know, certainly when we think about lung cancer, we know that confined intrathoracic disease has a lower rate of those molecules being disseminated in the bloodstream at a detectable level. And so when you have a negative result or one that doesn't have a defined driver, that's really a, an important area to think about follow-up tissue testing. The other thing I would really mention here is that although there are certainly some blood-based tests in the news that talk about blood-based testing as a primary diagnostic modality, in lung cancer, we don't view cell-free DNA testing as a primary diagnostic modality. You cannot use it in lieu of a full tissue diagnosis of lung cancer. So even if you have a cell-free DNA test on a patient that has a KRAS mutation, you can't really be sure what the histology of that tumor is without 
doing the tissue-based testing. Yeah, still clearly a role for tissue-based testing. These are a really important take-home points. And I would say, you know, we use a lot of liquid biopsy in the setting of like acquired resistance to targeted agents. But even there, where we're looking for the clonal evolution, we're looking for new solvent front mutations, tissue biopsy still plays a role because we can see histologic transformation. And there's no real way to pick that up in blood. Is that right? That is correct. In many ways, a biopsy of a progressing lesion can give you additional contextual information like small cell transformation or like EMT changes. And the other thing about liquid biopsy at progression is if you have multiple progressing lesions, then you don't necessarily know if you have multiple potential subclones, which one is anatomically where. So again, I really view these as complementary modalities and neither one should really be viewed in a vacuum without the other. A great way to put it. I mean, clearly liquid biopsy still holds value. Ignacio, can you look into the future for us? How do you see liquid biopsy being used in the management of lung cancer sort of in the near future? What is um, new for the application of cell-free DNA as liquid biopsy in lung cancer is the use of this modality in the early setting of the disease when we have a tumor that is surgical resected, for example, and then assessment of the abnormalities like mutations or other genomic alterations in the blood to help us to actually identify uh, early recurrence of this tumor after surgical resection. So this uh, minimal residual disease assessment is potentially an area that we will see a lot of progress in non-small cell cancer in early stages. And and there is different exciting approaches to this concept. And one that I like the most, and we're working on this concept in our institution, is that when a non-small cell cancer is resected, then you perform an extensive next-generation sequencing assessment called holexome sequencing. So you identify the molecular abnormalities that they are particular for that case, and then you follow up with the patient with liquid biopsy as MRD, minimal residual disease assessment. You actually can design a customized panel for that particular case. It's called biopsy or tumor-educated you know, approach for MRD in lung cancer. That can help us to identify occurrences of a tumor before we see clinical manifestations or images, a manifestation of the occurrence or a metastasis. Wow. that's So you're talking about a personalized tumor marker for surveillance, right? Exactly. Wow. I had a few more questions, but we are up against time, and I do want to be respectful of, of your very busy schedules. But maybe before we go, I know our listeners would love to hear a little bit about your own background. Uh, Dara, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your career path and why you chose to focus on lung cancer? Well, I think I would start by saying lung cancer chose me. And in large part, I consider it a happy accident of geography and circumstance. I came out here to the University of Colorado in 2010 and basically said I was willing to work on any area of pathology that was connected to molecular testing. And so my department suggested I focus on lung cancer. And I feel very, very fortunate to have had that opportunity and to work with the amazing people here at the University of Colorado. 
we feel very we feel very fortunate as well for, for all the advances you've helped lead there. Ignacio, same question to you. I know your training was in Chile. What brought you to the U.S. and why did you decide to focus on lung cancer? Yeah, I actually I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to work in lung cancer. What happened is that I was a pathology working in GI tract um, in back in Chile with an academic appointment and research interest. So I managed to get a fellowship in Dallas in UT Southwestern Medical Center to perform my studies on actually gallbladder cancer. And by being there, I met two giants of uh, translational research in lung cancer, Dr. Adi Gazdar and John Mina. I met them. They helped me with my gallbladder cancer project, but they invited me to join their team. And my career shift from a surgical pathologist doing clinical work to a pathologist doing a translational research. And that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. We're all better off for it, for both of you. Yeah, I'd love to keep going, but again, we're, we're at time. So let me stop here. I want to thank you both for joining us today, for all of your insights. Dara, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me today. Ignacio, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Have fun. Great. Thank you. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 